welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Welcome, friends. We are here today with David Hone. David is an Aussie living in London and the author of a book on climate change and the transition to a net zero reality called Putting the Genie Back. He is also the chief climate advisor to Shell and a board member of the International Emissions Trading Association, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, and the Global Capture and Storage Institute. The reason I know David is that he's also a committed world traveler. Um, I would add that he's a first-rate photographer and a very stylish dresser, probably the best-dressed chemical engineer actually I've ever met, David. Thank you. Um, too bad we don't have you on video today. I was lucky enough to meet David in Antarctica with Robert Swan's 2041 expedition. David gave a series of lectures on this expedition about the history of global warming and the energy transition we have before us. That was very um, illuminating and inspirational for me. It helped put things in great context. So maybe we can recap a little of that today. He also publishes a blog which you can find at blogs.shell.com. And the blog goes deep into carbon policy and shares future scenario models. Um, we're not gonna dive too deep into any of that today, um, but they are a great resource if you're interested in this. Um, he's also delivered numerous lectures on the history of global warming, even one that uh, we posted as an Adventure Travel Trade Association webinar, the case for CO2 removal. So um, welcome, David, first of all, why don't you uh, share where you're calling in from today. Right. Well, hi, Christina, and it's uh, nice to talk with you again. Uh, I, I can't say much for my dress code today. I've been working at <laughs> them for a few weeks, so I've degenerated down to shorts and a T-shirt, and uh, probably like most people in the world. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm, uh, I, I live in uh, central London, and that's where I'm calling from today. And uh, hello to everybody, and uh, nice to be with you again. Terrific. Yeah, thank you. Maybe we can um, start in Antarctica. I mean, I think it's um, we'll get to we'll get to climate, but I'd love to just open up a little bit with some of your travel resume. We met in Antarctica. For me, that was my first time, but I think you've been there many, many times. Um, how does that? Yeah, not many, many, but. Um... So with, with 2041 and with Robert Swan, uh, it, I've done three trips to Antarctica and one to the Arctic. And uh, I think my first trip to Antarctica in 2009 was sort of the most amazing travel experience of my life. It, it really blew me away uh, in terms of what we saw and uh, what it meant. And it's, it is like nowhere else. Um, but I've also been, you know, into those regions um, off my own bat. Uh, just last year, I, I was back in Ushuaia where we first met, and um, I did a uh, got on a ship and um, went to Cape Town uh, across the South Atlantic, and that was an amazing trip. We stopped in the, the Falkland Islands, and we uh, then we went to sort of back into the polar regions to South Georgia, which, if anyone's ever going to Antarctica try and add on the South Georgia option or, or go on a, on one of the expeditions that includes South Georgia because it's it's a remarkable place. 
And then we went to um, Tristan da Cunha, which is the, the most remote inhabited island in the world. And then finally to Cape Town. So the, the, the polar regions are quite special, I think. And uh, there's a lot to see and a lot to think about as well, because as, as you know, Rob Swan sort of calls them the canary in the coal mine uh, in terms of the climate. And I think that's very true. I, you know, contem- I think what Antarctica did for me was bring it into such a, a visceral reality because we um, read about climate change and even have evidence. I mean, no matter where you live, you have evidence of it. Um, but to go there and see glaciers and sort of feel the uh, the span of time um, was that that being there, there's nothing like being there. That's true. I'm curious how you. I think, as just, a- I think on our trip, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to mix my trips up, but I think it was on our mm-hmm. trip that we passed by the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula and by the Argentine um, base there on the day they recorded what was at that time the highest ever recorded temperature in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I remember it was a very sunny and nice day and 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 yet and there we were uh it was actually warmer than um in my hometown of melbourne Mm -hmm. so as a climate scientist as the chief climate well i'm not a climate scientist i'm a a chemical engineer but anyway yes well yeah well no that's a great correction um i think of you as sort of my uh climate mentor in a way but the but as somebody who is building scenarios around climate change and understands it so well. How, you know, how how do you see things differently from your first? Like, do you see your models playing out in real life? What's that feeling? So, in Shell, what we what we mainly look at is the um, is the energy transition that's necessary to to address the the problem of climate change, and, and in fact. You know, as a as a scenario team, that's that's one of our priorities is to help help the company navigate the the, the waters around the energy transition. Uh, you know, this is something that has is playing out. Uh, the energy mix is starting to shift. I think there's a there's a a lot of excitement around that, but there's a lot of anticipation that this is something that will happen overnight uh, mm-hmm. when that's unlikely to be the case. That, you know the, the energy system is is vast and, and complex, uh, and and whilst you know, whilst it is now moving and and that shift is occurring, um, and and it's gaining momentum, um, it's still going to take quite a few decades for for this to play out. So, you know, our job or my job in Shell with others is to, is to help the company position itself for that change and be part of it and emerge at the other end as a, uh, you know, uh, as a major business as it is today. I was just in, um, this morning I was listening in at the Climeworks Direct Air Capture 2020 Summit. They were live streaming it from Switzerland. I got up very early to tune in um, and there was a lecture on the importance of clean energy in direct air capture systems. And to scale this, we'll need to have clean energy and where can we get clean energy? And um, so this, can you say a little bit more about the energy transition? I remember 
in Antarctica, one of the lectures you gave sort of showed this kind of last mile that the the electrification of final energy that comes to our homes. And you also had a chart in there that, you know, showed the life cycle of different um, pieces of equipment. Yeah. Give me the. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, which, you know, started 200 years ago, was built on the back of coal. And it moved uh, to oil, and oil gave us mobility options all over the place, and, and led to, uh, you know, led to all the changes in in with vehicles and ships and airplanes and so on. And that 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 sort of energy system has grown exponentially over two hundred years, to the point where it accounts for about eighty percent of all of the energy we use. You know, despite you know, earnest efforts for transition, that 80% has, we've been stuck at 80% for, for, for decades now. Uh, even as, you know, the the EU and the US started to move towards renewables and started to look at alternatives, you've got China and then India powering up and, and using coal, uh, just as the UK and the US did in the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, and so, you know the energy system is is really hasn't shifted a great deal uh, in, in a very long time. Uh, it's and so you know the challenge the challenge in front of us is is to see that shift accelerate and uh, and I think what's where we are today is that the set of technologies that we need to bring about a change in the energy system and a complete change are now visible and available. Some of them are still a bit more expensive than the fossil fuel alternative. Uh, some of them have come down in price a lot over the past few years to, to sort of match fossil fuels. But that means that they're only really just getting going from a commercial perspective. Give uh, us some, give me a couple examples of the most visible and available. Uh, so I think the most, the most visible and available of recent years has been uh, solar PV. So these are solar panels. And if you go back a decade and certainly two decades, these were this was an expensive technology, um, and yet today people are building uh, solar farms in in various places around the world, competing with competing easily with coal and natural gas. Now, one of the one of the difficulties, of course, with that is that solar is a is a partial solution. It, it doesn't work all the time, obviously, because you know the, the sun is only there 12 hours a day on average. Uh, so you know when the sun is up, it's a very competitive solution. But when the sun goes down, you have to find something else. You either have to store electricity or you have to revert back to fossil fuels. At the moment, of course, we're reverting back to fossil fuels. Um, so it's still got a long way to go. But I think it's it's made tremendous uh, strides in, in, in the last decade, and I, and there's more to come. So, you know, expect to see large scale use of that technology. But solar PV is a, is a technology like, like a wind turbine that produces electricity. And although electricity feels like it's everywhere in society, for the most part, it's not the energy we use to deliver energy services. In fact, only 20% of the energy we use is electricity. The other 80% is solids, liquids, and gases like you know, oil products, coal, and natural gas. So 
even though we're making big inroads in in you know decarbonizing the electricity system with solar we haven't electrified the energy system yet and and that's been plodding along at a pretty slow rate uh, for the last 100 years now as we shift transport into the electricity system uh, and that's another technology where the, you know the price is coming down quite rapidly that rate of change will start will start to change itself but again you know good old tesla who who are much in the news today um, you know they they've been with us now for what 13 years and and certainly through their efforts they've changed the mindset around electric vehicles but you've yet to really see a change in fleet the fleet on the road or even the mm-hmm. fleet in the showroom Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are long, slow, big systems that have to change, but they can change. And I think the signs of change are all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, um, I remember, uh, you know, the, the idea of how long it takes to phase out shipping. You know, these um, freighters that go across the seas are, they live for 30, 40 years. These they do, yes. Ships. And then, of course, you know, they're, they're, a lot of the big capital equipment lasts that long. Um, yeah, big big container ships and things last last for thirty years. Um, but then, if you were going to build a, a new container ship that ran on something completely different, say it ran on hydrogen fuel cells, uh, and that's possible, the technologies are there to do that. Uh, it would be more expensive than the, the the existing fleet, but but those prices will come down. You, you sort of have to start planning now to start to see ships emerging in 2030. So therefore, you've got another 10 years of building the old the older technology before you even start the new technology rolling off the um, uh, you know rolling rolling down the slip and into the water, um, because we don't really have a design yet for a large scale container ship running on hydrogen although that may be emerging. Uh, We haven't really tested it out at scale. There are no refueling facilities around the world for for hydrogen. Uh, You know, you'd you'd want to put them in the places where ships typically fuel. So that's like Singapore and Dubai and Rotterdam and somewhere around in the US Gulf Coast. Um, So you've got to build them. So, so the whole system takes time, but but I, as I said, I think you know all the technologies are there now. Uh, it's a question of governments applying themselves and companies applying themselves and building it. This the the notion of um, so I remember a conversation also that we had in San Francisco on the sidewalk in front of maybe the Apple store, or maybe it was that crazy coffee shop that I maybe took you maybe to. it was yeah, <laughs> but. Um, but the idea that we have to plan now and start scaling up technologies that we know we need in the future, that we have to start that now, that was so um, inspiring to me. And I felt like this deep urgency. And so that's, I mean, this is the underpinning of this whole conversation is not about tomorrow's air, but this is the underpinning of tomorrow's air is, can we be part of helping uh helping build public opinion, particularly by talking to the traveler community, can we be part of the solution in mobilizing technologies that we'll need in the future? And 
um, I'm just, you know, as we go further in this, I'm realizing how, what a thing it is to invest now for something you need in the future. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit on this discussion that I, as I get more into this um, community, this carbon removal community, the discussion of what should we do first and what should we do later? And this, I know we need natural and technical solutions. We need to be working on sort of many fronts at the same time. Yep. Yeah, we do. So, So we do need, you know, carbon removal, which is removing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yeah. I, all our scenarios point to that as being an important technology option for the future for, for two reasons. One is that fossil fuels still make up the vast majority of the energy system, and it's going to be some time before they're, they, they, you know, they, 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 they are phased out, uh, and it could be decades. And then the second reason is that the atmosphere really already has too much carbon dioxide um, and that, you know, you want some option up your sleeve to, to maybe correct that in the future. So this idea of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is important while the fossil fuel system is, is still there, but also, you know, for the very long term. And so, you know, how do you do that is, is really the question. Uh, so, so, one way, of course, is to is to grow more trees, um, and that's a very simple way. But it's 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 simple in one respect, in that everybody knows that if you plant a seed, you you get a plant, and then it can grow into a tree. But it's complex in another, in that it butts up against, you know, policy and land use and society and all sorts of things, particularly given the scale on which you want to do it. We're not talking about, you know, acres at the end of the street. We're talking about hundreds of millions of acres around the world. And in fact, I, I was just looking out of interest at um, at the U.S. the the U.S. National Forest System, um, and that's been growing over the last hundred years. But if you look at the amount of carbon sink that the U.S. might need in the future. To, to mitigate emissions uh, as it goes through its energy transition, the amount of land you'll need is more than the forest system has grown over the last hundred years. No kidding. Yeah. And, and it's all gone up in smoke anyway. Some bits are, but, but the, the point is that, you know, what's the lever for, for growing the forest system? And it's Congress. Congress, I, I found an article on this and, and, it's now the case that you can only expand the forest system, as I understood it, through an act of Congress. Um, and, and and that's not to say they won't do it. I'm just saying, you know, there's a political process that would have to be put in motion before you even start thinking about growing the trees and, and, and where you're going to grow them and, you know, which jurisdiction and which which congressman do you have to talk to and so on. So, you know, it's 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 embedded in society and politics and everything else. So that's the natural thing, and it's easy to do, but it's it may be complex to implement at scale because of the social issues that you, you might have to encounter and political issues. So then the other possibility is uh, a technical solution, that you build a device or devices that, that filters carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. 
and these exist already as 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 you know and in fact if you uh go to a few places in the world you can see them and and one i did visit last year again with 2041 and uh um explorer's passage was um was in iceland and there's a single unit there it's only absorbing 20 uh, sorry 50 tons of co2 per annum from the atmosphere which is very very tiny but it works and it's in being injected into the subsurface so and they have a new generation that's coming. right so this technology yep. is is in its infancy um money is going into it there's a lot of venture capital money interested in this technology and um and it's improving and 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 doubtless it will improve uh but let's not forget you know back in 2000 um everybody thought or 1990s everybody sort of thought well solar is exciting and uh you know nasa used it and they put it on all those satellites but it's very expensive and it's taken 25 years to get to the point where it makes up a couple of percent of the global electricity system which in turn makes up a fifth of the energy that we use so there are long now it's starting to sort of rise exponentially but don't expect air capture to sort of appear you know in the next 5 years uh, i think what's important is that money flows into the technology through the types of um uh mechanisms that you've set up uh under tomorrow's air which encourages development of the technology um and allows the developers to um you know to look for new routes and look and, and look to how they scale it um to make it more cost effective so i think you know that will happen it's just a question of really how long and how much capital can flow into it and i think tomorrow's air is a great route for for people to invest in to to actually see a technology that you know we're going to need during this century come into being of course i love you for saying that um because we are very optimistic and hopeful here i was thinking about voluntary carbon markets which i have had since tomorrow's air launched a few people from voluntary carbon market organizations reach out and i wonder if you have any sort of general thought on the interplay between these voluntary, like tomorrow's air sort of is in that we're not a market, but we're maybe in a way we are, we're in that category versus the, um, the need for regulation. I mean, these two things kind of have to push together, right? They do. And I, and I think that, you know, they're both sitting together at the moment. Uh, you know, the regulatory world, which, which seeks to manage carbon, on a large scale across countries and then across the world under the paris agreement is ultimately where we need to go um but we're a long way from that being fully effective today uh, and so the voluntary market which allows individuals and companies and various groups to to start the ball rolling um is filling that gap now in a wildly successful paris agreement world the voluntary market um phases out and that's mm -hmm. a good that's actually a good thing right because it, it means unnecessary because right it becomes unnecessary right mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but today it's very necessary because it's a way of channeling capital and and you know into technologies 
um, and, and sowing the seeds for the future. But you know, we should we should wish that it vanishes because if it does vanish, I think we're in a in a world that is rapidly heading down the path towards decarbonization. Mm-hmm. We were thinking of a campaign that would be something like that, <laughs> like put us out of put us out of this line of work, make us unnecessary. I want. Um, can you say a little bit about carbon removal allocation quotas? I know that this is another piece of when we talk about getting to net zero, and I think you mentioned this a little bit in your in the other podcast that I listened to. Yeah, you know, we, so, so we're not getting to net right now because we aren't removing. No, we're not. But but so for instance, the, the the European Union is is currently putting together legislation such that all the countries under the EU will have energy systems at net zero emissions by 2050. And what that means is that that the 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 net emissions from the EU's energy system will be zero, but there will still be emissions, and where there are emissions, there'll be an equivalent removal, so that the overall is zero. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and so you have to you have to build a policy system that encourages that. Now, at the moment, the EU has an emissions trading system, which is like they have in, where you are in California, a cap and trade system that that basically. Uh, allocates allowances which allow you to emit CO2 uh, into society. And the number that they're allocating is slowly decreasing over time till eventually it reaches the point where the government doesn't allocate anymore because there's nothing left to allocate because you're at zero. But at that point, you're still probably emitting. You've still got industries and you've still got planes and you've you may still have ships that are emitting carbon dioxide because they're still using fossil fuels because it takes so long for the system to change. And so those systems have to somehow change over time such that they act as trading systems between those that have removals and those that need them to balance their emissions. So I think that's a fairly easy transition for the cap and trade systems, um, but it's one that policymakers need to start to think about. We're getting into the weeds a bit here, aren't we? We are. Yeah. Sorry. We are in the weeds. Well, the thing that I think is <laughs> well, it's what's interesting is that from a like a traveler, the way travelers look at this is very much like um, I'm I'm flying from New York to Rio de Janeiro, and I'd like that to be a neutral. How how can I make that neutral? And this sort of contextualizing. Um, this in the broader scope, like all all countries are trying to figure out how to do that, and it's more there's right. more to it than you know plant a tree. So they're doing on a voluntary basis what countries are seeking to do on a regulatory basis, and and organisations like Tomorrow's Air are offering them that facility to balance the emissions, just like the EU will eventually offer a facility to. To industries to balance their emissions, so the EU is at net zero emissions. You can fly at net zero emissions today, but I think in flying today, or what you know, however you emit CO two, I, 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 and this is why I, I think tomorrow's air is such a, a, a great idea, is that you're focusing on removals, mm-hmm. because if you're if you're extracting fossil fuels and carbon dioxide ends up in the atmosphere. Ultimately, the only way of mitigating that 
is to remove carbon dioxide and geologically store it. So putting the mm -hmm. carbon back where you've basically back where you found it. And that's all doable today. Uh, you know, Shell has a big facility in Canada that's, that's capturing a million tons of carbon dioxide per annum, not from the air, but from an industrial process and geologically storing it. And it works. You know, there's no issues with that technology. So a combination of reducing fossil fuel use and increasing removals and increasing geological storage gets us to a solution. But as I said back at the beginning, that's, that's not going to happen in, you know, in, in just a few years. Um, it's going to take some time. But that, and that, that time frame needs to, to, to accelerate. Because we can't take as long as we took with solar. Not or, really. No, no. Yeah. you know, we, we, we haven't got, you know, decades and decades. Um, but I think, as I said, the system is starting to move. And that, that's a first really important sign. You know, often with very big things, they take a long time to initially get them to move and then they start accelerating. And then, of course, you can't move them back in the other direction. Mm -hmm. You're, you're mm -hmm. stuck with the new direction um, and off it goes. It just heads off in that direction. Momentum, you know, to overcome the momentum of where we've been is taking a lot of effort. But once that new direction is set, that's where you end up. One of the things I think has happened in the in climate conversations is it's just so gloomy. It's so, we talk so much about, um, I was listening to a Gabriel Walker talk this weekend too. And she was saying, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't say, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. And so much of our climate talk is always about the nightmare and the threat and the danger. And we've been trying to make the case that it's happening. Um, but we can start to talk about what we dream. And I feel like travel gives us a way into that. I have a dream conversation because of the way travel illuminates us and excites us and is, you know, so I was looking to bring us a little bit to travel. And I know you have been many places um, recently in your Facebook posts, you have done these uh, travel before days of lockdown, border controls, pandemic and quarantine. But so that, but there, I mean, it's, it's still, um, we still want to travel and it's still something beautiful and, and good for us to do. Do you, how do you feel when you travel? What are your, where's your optimism there? Appreciate the, the value that we have and, and, you know, and the need to, to ensure that other generations in the future ha can have all that value and more. And I think that's the, that's the, the single big message in Antarctica, isn't it? It's one of the few places you can go that is completely pristine. There's nobody there. Apart from the occasional hut, there's nothing there except whales and seals and penguins and ice. Um, and and that's, it's, it's beautiful in, the, in that, you know, I guess once upon a time, the whole planet looked like that, you know, in the, in the sense that there was nothing there other than, other than, um, you know, the, the, the natural environment. So we don't have that everywhere and we're, we're, we're not going to go back to that. But I think in visiting those places, you, you can really gain an appreciation for, uh, for, for, for what's, what's important. Your, and these pristine environments. What's one are of your important. other recent um, journeys that you 
that you most love? Um, well, in the middle of in the middle of this pandemic, because my 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 wife lives in Geneva, so I, I we went on a, a Swiss road trip this year. Uh, which and Switzerland's a beautiful country. It's you know it's a bit like there, there are parts of it where you don't really see many people, uh, despite the fact that it's quite small and there's lots of people living there. When you get up into the mountains, it's pristine and beautiful, and uh, it reminds you a little bit—not quite the ice, not quite the same amount of ice, but of of Antarctica. I think because of the scale, you know, you look at the the Matterhorn and you look at the Mont Blanc and things, and, and the scale of the mountains in Switzerland, which you can just see very clearly in front of you, is is immense. And that was that gives you that feeling of a place like Antarctica, because the scale of Antarctica is is like nothing else I'd ever seen. Um, so yeah, there are lots of, I, I think even in a pandemic, it's still worth trying to get out there and find some natural environment to go and visit. And, uh, it's actually a really, oddly enough, it's a good time to visit because there's a lot, a lot, far fewer people traveling, um, which isn't really what the travel industry wants, but nevertheless, there there's a certain beauty in sitting there with, with no one else there. <laughs> We're, we are actively looking at how to build back better. Um, I know. I know. We'll, let's see. Let's see if we can do it. I want, um, before we wrap up, David, I want to ask you about your musical taste. <laughs> I've been asking all our guests what oh, they dear. listen to. Yes, what what you listened to as a young as a young man in Australia, and you were in different small towns, it sounds like. And then what do you listen to now? Um, well, I guess, I mean, I grew up in the, I was a teenager in the, in, in the seventies. So I just enjoyed all of the, you know, whatever was the top 40 in the, in the seventies. I, I always remember, uh, it's bizarre the things you remember listening to because we used to get it in australia uh and he's long gone casey Kaysen's oh sure i know casey Kaysen's coast to coast or something i can't remember yes. and his top 40 i used to love listening to that Me um too. the problem i have with my son is that i still listen to the same music <laughs> <laughs> and, and he can't bear it so i and i don't blame him because he's got his own uh his own taste today so my my i i think I think for a lot of people, you get stuck in the in the music that you enjoyed, and uh, so I'm I'm to imagine you and your wife driving through Switzerland with the hits of the '70s. This is an amazing yeah, vision. We did actually. It. We did we did have it on, and my son was he was with us this time. He's sitting in the back, sort of thinking, "Oh God, what you know? What am I doing?" But he does he does at least enjoy the travel, and I'm hoping to get him to Antarctica, uh, maybe next year. Wonderful. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time. You've been so generous. I think your um, patience with people from outside your world is um, uh, unbelievable because the the stupidity of the questions that I have asked and will continue to ask. (laughs) Great questions because I think they're shedding, throwing a light on things that that not that many people have reason to understand it's not that they don't understand it or can't understand it it's they don't have a reason to understand it and uh, uh but it's important because it's becoming important for everybody's life to understand some of these things like we all have to understand covid statistics today who who, who would have thought about that a year ago 
<laughs> that Who we, would have thought? <laughs> yeah, that we needed to know what our numbers were and how pandemics uh, spread. But we do, because mm-hmm. it helps us. It helps us contextualize the problems that we've got. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I'm so grateful and um, look forward to being in touch. Good. All right. Thanks. And thank you very much for inviting me today. 